This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. Hi, this is Steve Perry, and I'm a managing partner of the New York Life Office in Minnesota. And I was just interviewed for Dr. Karen's podcast. And you might want to listen because in it, we talk about the capacity model and why stress is a gift, how to build your best life, as well as why it's imperative to be bold in the marketplace today. My guest today is a young executive leader who has quickly climbed the corporate ladder Everything he touches turns to gold. Today, he reveals some pages from his success playbook. Tune in and find out what is relevant for executive success in today's business climate. Now, let me introduce you to my guest, Steve Perry. As managing partner of New York Life Minnesota, Steve Perry currently leads a team of over 75 financial professionals and makes it his mission to help people steward their resources well so that they can live radically generous lives. Steve is a nationally recognized financial professional, speaker, and leader. He started his first business at age 15 and started his career as a financial advisor at age 20. His relentless pursuit of excellence led him to promotion as a partner in his firm in less than five years. Since then, Steve has received national recognitions as a top performer in nearly every measurable performance category. He holds the distinction of winning more national trophies in a single year than anyone in his company's 175 plus year history. And he's done that twice in a row. Since 2011, Steve has been married to his beautiful wife, Tabitha, and they are blessed with daughters Lily and Liberty. Originally from San Diego, California, and Alaska, Steve and his family now reside in beautiful Minnesota. Thank you so much, Steve, for being here with me today on The Voice of Leadership and Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. Thank you, Dr. Karen. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm so glad to see you and to visit with you again and look at that wall of awards. I hope everybody else can see it if you're on a platform and format where you can see the uh, the video component. So wonderful. So I'm going to start there a little bit, Steve, and I want to ask you, you became a partner and a managing director at a very young age and in a short period of time. You've won all of these awards, as we've just said, in your industry. So how are you achieving this level of success and accomplishments? What's your secret? <laughs> yeah, well, I would say probably a lot of it came from, you know, an amazing childhood, but an unhealthy pursuit of success. I was, you know, probably like a lot of people, I wasn't I wasn't the cool kid growing up. I was, I was kind of like in the middle cool kid group. And so I always found myself, you know, striving to, to succeed and to accomplish and to win, just, just to be accepted by my peers. And fortunately, you know, what maybe I meant for selfish purposes, God used for good and, and, you know, put me in this amazing career where that type of drive would be rewarded whenever I put that, that effort in. But um, I mean, I like winning. I like winning. And, and so whatever, whatever the rules are and whatever we got to do to win, um, we're, we're going to make it happen. You know, early on in my career, I found that I would do as little as it possible as it took to win the award. And as a individual producer and a financial advisor, you know, that was okay for me. But where I really flourished was, was when I was promoted into that partner position. And I was in a leadership position where now I realized it wasn't just me at 25 years old, but I was hiring and bringing in new, new financial advisors who some of them were twice my age and their, their family's livelihood depended on their ability to be successful in the career. And so I really took that responsibility to heart and did everything in my power to help them be successful. Um, but, but I knew that I, I, like, I couldn't accomplish all of these things on my own. And so I've always, 
always been somebody who you know didn't need to do everything and get everything all the credit myself but but brought in team members delegated authority and and really sought to provide everyone a say in you know what it is we, that our team was trying to accomplish so as far as the as far as the the, the wall of plaques if, that that you referenced i i will say that uh that was a two-year journey uh, my first couple of years as a managing partner and every morning at staff meeting with our our team uh, we would open up in prayer and we would pray, Lord, help us be so successful this year that we can't possibly point to any of us as the source for that success. But we have to point to you because the numbers don't add up. It's got to be a supernatural deal. And, and that's, you know, he blessed us with that. Well, that's wonderful. That's a great example and start about what's been behind your success. So I heard several things. One, going all the way back to childhood, you had your own drive for excellence and success anyway, and you said it was rooted in really trying to gain acceptance. And thankfully, though, God has used that drive in some other ways. So it's not just about you right now, but you're also thinking about those people who actually work under your leadership, in a sense, and you want their families to benefit as well. So I think that's really important. I heard that you said it's the team and beyond the team is also the supernatural. All of those things are really key and really important in the process. So let me dial it back just a little bit, because I said earlier that you started your first job at 15 years old. What job was that? What did you do at 15? So my, well, so my first job, I was 14. I was commercial salmon fishing in Alaska. So if anyone's ever seen Deadliest Catch, that was, you know, 14 year old, 102 pounds soaking wet Steve Perry out there in the ocean hauling, hauling in salmon. Um, and, and I learned that summer that uh, I didn't like working for somebody else. And so um, with a little bit of encouragement from my father, um, I was able to start my own company and, and that was an asphalt maintenance or driveway seal coating company. And that, that came about because it's like this dirty, awful, nasty job that in Alaska, everyone has to do every summer. And, and, you know, my, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. My dad, um, worked kind of a mid-level white collar job, didn't make a whole lot of money, spent 25% of their income sending my sister and I to the best private Christian school. And he paid me $200 to do our driveway, which took like two hours. So as a 15 year old kid, I'm like, well, there's probably other people who make more money would be willing to do that too. So I marched up and down the neighborhood and, and hung flyers and door knockers. And you know that grew from something I was doing to myself all the way through high school and college that I paid my way through college with that company trucks, trailers, equipment, employees, you know, the whole nine yards. So that's amazing to do that at 15 years old. But I hear a couple things in that you looked around and you said, there's a need here. People need this service. I can provide this service. You saw that there was an opportunity for making money with it. Because a lot of times people think about starting a business, maybe it's something they like to do or want to do, but nobody wants it. So you actually were already attuned to market need and even assessing what you were going to do in this business. And then earlier you learned, hey, I don't really like working for other people, so I better come up with something so I don't have to really do that. Stephen, you also said to me, you know, you said earlier that your, I think it was your aunt was telling you when you were 19 years old, she recognized that God had given you a gift of making money. And so when she saw that, she said some counsel to you that impacted your life. What was that counsel your aunt gave you when she saw this gift you had? So, so with that, you know, she, she said that, that you have to be generous. Like if God's given you that, that gift it's a high calling and, and the stewardship of those financial resources, you know, is not, not to be taken lightly. So, you know, I, I look across the world at, at missionaries who have literally given up everything that they know in America and, and taken their family across the world to live in some pretty deplorable situations. I, like I count it as a blessing to be able to live in a nice house on the lake and put my kids in private school and drive a nice truck and, send a significant portion of our income to them while they're going to do or they're going to do that. And so that really is the driving force as to why, why I am in business. I actually love that because, you know, this whole concept of being a marketplace ministry leader and what you're really identifying is that there's more than one way to do that. And everyone doesn't have to be in traditional ministry, like going overseas to a foreign country and so on. 
these efforts require financial backing. And if you have the gift of making money through your generosity, you can actually support a lot of those efforts. And that's what I hear you talking about. You know, Steve, you also said that you help other people figure out how to live generously. What are a couple of strategies that you can share for what does that look like? How do you operate in your life so that you become or that you are a generous person? Yeah, uh, there's several things. Um, You know, one of the things I would say is talking about money, right? I, I feel like the church it's like a taboo subject. And if you're going to talk about money, it's like, shh, don't, don't talk too loudly and don't like, don't have too much. And, and, you know, it, like we don't talk about that kind of thing. So I bring it up and then openly talk and share about, you know, what are the things that, that God's called my wife, Tabitha and I to do in our life with our finances? Where do we give if appropriate, you know, numbers and percentages and like to create models. Cause I crave those things from people who I look up to as generosity mentors. So, so having those conversations, you know, we've created a Bible study inside of our organization, which, you know, we're fortune 100 company kind of weird to do that, but we meet every Wednesday and whoever wants to come can come. And uh, the topic is business and God in business. And, you know, naturally people like being in business, you only know if you're in business, if you're making money or not. And so we have to talk about money. And so every week we look at a verse about where, where the Bible talks about money, which it talks about more than any other concept. And we, we debrief that and we share it and we, we discuss what do we do with our money and, and how much is enough. And, and I love getting a hold of these new entrepreneurs when they're young and barely making any money for, for two reasons. Number one, if you can be generous when you're starting a business, like I think that's the best thing because I don't know where my next sale is going to come from or when my next revenue, but I know who does. And, and that's God. And if I'm being obedient by tithing and then giving generously on top of that, I mean, the Bible talks about sowing and reaping. And so that's going to help my business. And then the second thing is they can establish a lifestyle today on a lower income level so that they can get everything that they want right now set in motion and and achieve that over time, but then give everything on top of that. And so these principles that we can teach early on in people's careers through forums like that, I mean, I think we can change the world with that. Absolutely. And it's so needed. Um, It's needed in this sense. There are people who make a lot of money, whether they be entertainers, athletes, business professionals, or whatever, and they may not be getting the training and the teaching about the principles that you're sharing right now and what to think about in advance and to plan in advance. So you are being a role model for when you get these resources, here's how you can allocate them. Here's something you can do with them. And we have education on almost everything else. And yet people are seem to be afraid to give education and finances. And yet it is so needed. So I think that's a wonderful way that you are contributing in the workplace. And even from a biblical perspective with the Wednesday Bible study and with those who are on your team and in your group. So that's, that's phenomenal. And they're blessed you know, to have you share something like that. You're showing them how to be successful. And we know the Bible says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I think one piece of that is because as we give, we get more. You know, If you show yourself to be a good steward, God says, okay, you got a good steward down there. Let me resource that person some more so they can resource the kingdom, if you will. So I really love that. I love what you're doing. So you're starting to share, Steve, a bit about How is it that you live out your purpose at work? Tell us a little bit more about that, how you live out your purpose at work. So I have like the, the corporate answer. And then, and then I've got like my real heart and soul answer. So when I, when I took over this organization about three and a half years ago, we, we went through an exercise with all of our stakeholders, both the leadership team and then all, all of the advisors in our organization, we spent about three months crafting our mission, our vision, our values, and our beliefs. And, and everyone got to put their fingerprints on it. And so our mission came out to be that we live to lead others into building their best life, which tied into the subtext of, of my book, uh, The Capacity Model, How to Build Your Best Life. But uh, that, that so that's something that all of us can grab a hold of, whether we have faith or not. Uh, I mean, everyone wants to be a part of that. And whether we're on the leadership team, we're helping our advisors build their best life. Whether we're an advisor working with clients, we get to help them build our best life. Whether we're on the service team, servicing the advisors and the clients, everyone gets to do that. 
That's kind of the, the, the corporate version of it. Now, me personally, my, my contract is that I'm a bold, encouraging, generous follower of Jesus Christ who will help fund billions to grow God's kingdom by leading others to live radically generous lives, which you, you picked up the last part of there in, in the intro. And so how do I do that, right? Well, I, I get to recruit and hire new people into a career where if they do it right, they're going to make tens of millions of dollars over the next few decades. And like I said earlier, I get to help shape them as they're going from making nothing to more money than they've ever made in their life. And they're looking to me for leadership, both in how do I operate my life and, and then how do I teach them and mentor them in how they do that. So I get to do that inside of my organization every day. But then on the other side is I have a lot of peers. I have 116 peers in our company that are all successful leaders that you know, are making three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year to three, four, five million dollars a year. And we all know that when we make more money and we buy more expensive things, it doesn't make us any happier. Like I live in a beautiful home on the lake that costs four times as much as my last home, but I'm not four times happier living in that home. And so people are real are having these conversations in their head. Like, what do I do as I have more worldly success? with the resources with that. And again, goes back to the conversation where that's not talked about. And so I've created another forum where we get together, um, the other managing partners and I once a week, and you know we pray for our families, for the leaders in our company, for our offices and our agents. Um, but then we also study a similar Bible verse and we talk about generosity, we talk about finances. And I, I put myself in a position to be a resource for, for these people as these thoughts are coming up and we're sharing what we're doing. And so it's both, grassroots with new people that are getting into business and helping form that. And then it's providing opportunity and, and guidance and relationship for people who have already reached a successful level in their career. I hear a couple things in there that I think is just so powerful, Steve. And that's this, when the people are new, they don't know yet what it's going to feel like when they're making millions and millions of dollars. And some may mistakenly believe that making the millions is what's going to feel you know, important or satisfying for them in and of itself. So you've got that group. Then you've got the group, they know what it feels like. They're making the money and they're looking around there saying, is this it? You know, is this all kind of like what we see, you know, out there, whether it be in Hollywood or wherever. And so they're looking for deeper meaning. So one of the things you're doing with the new group, you're starting them off right from the beginning, focused on the deeper meaning. So it's a both and. And then with the group that maybe you didn't start with, you're helping them to figure out, well, how do I ensure that it's not just making money, but it's money for a purpose, for a reason that goes beyond just myself. And that's where the meaning part comes in, the generosity and the giving and all of that. So in both directions, you are making a very significant contribution is what I'm hearing you say. This whole concept about helping people live their best life and I love the fact that you all participated in developing it. It wasn't just a top-down, okay, here's what we're about, and you're passing it on to the team, but everybody was co-creating that mission, if you will. So what else is a part of the best life as you define it? Yeah. One of the things I love about it is it is personal, right? It, it looks different to different people. And honestly, I find one of the most difficult and, and meaningful components of it is just getting people to define what does that mean to them. In our interview process, as we're, again, making sure people align with the culture that we have and, and we're potentially recruiting them into our firm, one of the questions we ask multiple times is define for me what your best life looks like. And it's very, very rare that I get a vivid answer, like one out of a hundred. And, and if I went around and talked to any of my advisors, a lot of them would have a hard time quantifying that. And so, you know, what, what we do is we spend several hours every quarter, every 12 weeks, and all of my new advisors, first three years, they'll do a business plan. But a component of that is talking about goals. And the way I phrase goals is what are the things that you want to achieve that are driving your hunger in this business, right? Like, you, there, there's like trips that, that they could win. 
right? And they'll say, that's a goal of mine. Well, no, it's not because before you started working here, you didn't even know that existed, right? That will help you get something else that is a part of your best life. But but let's dig deeper and try to figure out what is that. Now, hopefully in that process, you know, we've built a relationship to the extent where they're like, man, I I, I feel like I'm a generous person too, or I want to be a generous person and, and we can unlock that. But I love that it's just personalized to to whatever they they want, and we and we live in a structure in, in our world here, fortunately, that they can get that. Yeah, that's phenomenal because it's very individual in a sense. What each person would define as their best life, and what's powerful about the process you're using is you're helping people to be intentional about both defining it and also living it. And a lot of times people just kind of drift along in their lives. They're not thinking about these things in advance. And so by the time they think about their best life, their life is almost over. And so you're helping them really to maximally utilize the years that they have in advance before they're about to run out of the years in, in that sense. So maybe give us an example or two. Think of a, not you don't have to call names or anything, but think of a couple of people who best life for them may be slightly different than what you're doing and what it looks like. What's, what's a picture of what it might look like? Yeah. So I, I can think of one of, one of the guys I hired a couple of years ago and he and his wife, they're in their late thirties, early forties, and, and they don't want to have kids and they want to live in Minnesota in the summertime and they want to live in Florida in the wintertime. So when he started working at our firm, right, he, he had been a personal trainer. She was working on site as a nurse. And over the last two years, they've transitioned to where now he's working fully remotely, uh, where, where his clients are all over the U.S., but all, they're running all Zoom meetings. And, and then that encouraged his wife to figure out how to have a remote nursing job where she's able to work remotely. And then they've been able to take trips down to Florida for extended periods of time in the winter. Now they don't have the house yet there, but they've put, they've been able to put the pieces in play to where maybe in the past they would have thought, well, we got to work till we're 60 and then we've saved up enough money and then we can quit our jobs and retire and then move down to Florida versus they can continue to run in their business and do that 20 years earlier than they ever thought they could have. That's great. I love that because who's to say you're going to be here at 60? Who's to say you'll be in good health at 60? And I know my mother died young. She was 64. And one of the lessons I learned from her was live your life every day along the way. Don't wait for stuff. You know, have interspersion vacations now. Do the things you really want to do because you don't know how long you're going to be here to do them. So you're helping people do that as well. Let's talk about this concept of work-life balance. Some people refer to work-life balance, or they might call it life integration. So what do you call this sense of balance in life or whatever word you use? And how do you maintain the proper alignment in your life? Yeah. So I'm not a fan of the word work-life balance, um, although it helps people understand you know, where you're going. I, I like the words work-life integration. Um, a lot of that comes from, from my coach who's you know, helped help teach me on some of these things. And, and again, I, I've been fortunate to be in a career because I've taken an entrepreneurial path where I, I do have the ability to integrate the two things. A few years ago, actually it was when we moved um, from Texas to, to Minnesota, I decided that I wanted to take my kids to school. Not every day. <laughs> I don't like doing that every day, but but two days a week. And my dad never never did that, right? He always went to work. My mom always brought us to school and that worked out great. But but it was like I have like my kids are now going to school. If I don't do this now, what's going to change in the future? So so that was kind of like a gateway drug to, you know, integrating my personal life in the middle of my day with my kids. And then it progressed from there, right? When we went into this COVID environment and work from home, I always wanted to help out in my daughter's class. And so they needed someone to come in and turn laptops on. <laughs> Talk about being a managing partner at a Fortune 100 company <laughs> and then having first graders yell at you because you're not turning their laptop on fast enough <laughs> and then going back to, you know, but I, it was fun. I went and did that. And, and every Friday at one o'clock, I went there. And then what I found out from that is, 
well, we could go to recess afterwards with them. So I'm out there in recess and it's 20 below zero, but these kids are playing football and my daughter is the shortest kid in the class and all the boys are playing football. She's like, daddy, I want to play football. I'm like, all right. So I go out there and they're like, will you be the quarterback? And, and then I got to throw it to my daughter because ain't no one else going to throw it to her when, when I'm not there. And it's like these things that like are just so cool, but you have to like look up and realize, oh my gosh, I, if I don't do this now, I'm just going to get stuck in this rut. And so in my world, right, a lot of executives move a lot where they're like, go to the next post, go to the next post. And our families suffer from that. And so it's so important to do it. But we get in this, this mindset that's like, I'll work really hard now so that when I later I have the time and money and to, to do the things that are important to me. Well, later is now. And it's only now if you choose for it to be now. And so I would just encourage anybody to, to look at like, I, I know you don't think you have the time. I know that you think somebody's going to need you while you're gone. But the, some of the most, thing, the biggest thing that resonates to me, like the day you die, your email inbox is going to be full. So like, go do it and find out what happens. And you'll realize like, you're going to have a lot more fun doing that than you were whatever it was at work. And then then go back to work. Like, so like I just got done telling you, like I, I, I didn't dress up today because I went golfing. Right? I had a break from 1230 to 2.30. I'm like, hey, let's go golfing. And I grabbed one of my advisors and we went and played. Well, we didn't get nine holes in. We got eight holes in because I had to get back here in time. But uh, those types of things are what I refer to as work-life integration. And, and that's the benefit of, you know, being able to work hard for a number of years, but then you got to look at and take advantage of it. Yes, I think that's fabulous that you described the entrepreneurial journey. One of the benefits of being an entrepreneur is that you can integrate your life in the way that you just described and talked about, which really does mean thinking about what is it that you want to do? What would be interesting? Like, for example, if it's volunteering at your child's school or whatever it is, people have to sit down and ask, you know, what would I really prefer? And then, as you said earlier, make a choice for it design your life to include it. And sometimes people just, they don't identify something. So their life never gets designed to include it. So therefore their life doesn't include it. And by the time they think about it, the children are grown. They're no longer in school or whatever the situation might be. So again, it's thinking in advance. It's what I'm hearing you say. And then also making it happen because you can, you're making it happen because it's a possibility. It really is an option. So let me shift gears a little bit, Stephen. Let me ask this. You know, in the secular workplace, and particularly a Fortune 100 company, such as the one you're working for, there are a lot of natural tensions because you've talked about your Christian faith and how that's important to you and the values you live and so on. So what are some of those natural tensions that you face just living for God and also figuring out what works in the corporate you know, sector, because that's not always an easy fit. So what are you running into and how are you navigating that? I haven't had a lot of challenges. Like I I said earlier, like one of my characteristics is that I'm bold. Um, I try to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. So when he tells me to do things, I try to do them. I'm not, I'm not always in tune with that and obedient right away. But uh, so I haven't gotten to the point where I've done something that has been a challenge now. So most of the challenges are perceived challenges. So like, let me give you an example of that. I told you I've got a Bible study in our office for anyone who wants to attend. And I sent out an initial email to everybody and said, Hey, we're doing this. We'd love to have you. My perception is I have to leave it there. Right? So I had X number of people raise their hand. I sent them calendar invites. They come. Then I told the group, I said, all right, I can't compel anyone. Like I'm, in, I'm a sales guy, right? Like, I, like I'd like to sell people on, hey, you need to be here at this. Like you do, it's really great, right? I, as the leader though, I, I don't want to be seen as compelling people and putting them in positions where they feel like they have to come because the boss said so. So good news, bad news. I, I put that on the attendees and say, I can't do that. Like you guys got to do that. So you got to get other people to come and, and other people to buy in. So that, that would be an example maybe of the tension. You know, when I was in West Texas, Christianity and, and faith is a lot more prevalent and it's certainly kind of expected and common everywhere. And so we could open up our staff meetings and prayer because everyone on the team 
would would either you know would say that they're a Christian or they're they're okay with that, and and so I believe the power of prayer and and it's powerful, and and so we did that there, right? Minnesota, not not quite as much, and so that's not something that we necessarily we do, you know. But I always try like when we're having a award luncheon or dinner or a big dinner banquet, right? I'm always going to open up in prayer, and so. I, you know, to this point, I haven't had anyone complain and, and, you know, maybe it'll happen, but, but whatever. Um, that's, that's a pretty easy price to pay versus what a lot of people experience around the world. So. This is great because what you're saying is that people are getting enough benefit being a part of your group and team that even if let's say they're not aligned per se with the Christian values or lifestyle that they're not complaining about things because they're benefiting. So I want to unpack that a little bit because I have this concept that marketplace ministry leaders are benefiting everyone in the workplace, no matter what their you know faith position is. So if you think about people who may not be Christians and yet they may be part of your organization or your environment, what are some examples of benefits that they get, even if they don't share the same faith journey? Yeah. Uh, a couple couple of things come to mind. One of, one of them is kind of along the lines of of you know your your mindset about workplace ministry. I think we as Christians should be some of the most powerful people for the sheer fact that every Sunday we go to a personal development conference. Like the majority of Americans don't do that. They they watch football, and so I do that every single Sunday. And then I take what I learned. And, you know, I, I probably take a few of the Bible verses out. It's a life applicable process or um, concept. And I bring it to work and I teach it. And, you know, my, I tell my pastor, hey, like I'm, I'm, I'm stealing from you. And then we teach it, right? So, so biblical concepts were, come from the creator of the universe who knows how everything works. And so why wouldn't I take and teach those concepts? at the workplace and everyone's going to benefit from it. The the second thing I would say is that the whole premise of salvation is, is love. And the greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm guilty. Like I'm not always this, but when I'm at my best, I'm loving everybody the way that Jesus loves. And there's no better way to lead people than to love the way Jesus loved and the example that he shows. And so I, I don't know about you, but I certainly have appreciated whenever the, my leader operated in that sense. Uh, and love doesn't mean you're a doormat, by the way. We all know we all know Jesus was no doormat. But whether you love Jesus or not, like you're going to benefit from having a leader who truly operates in that. Absolutely, yeah. Couldn't be more well said that people are going to benefit if the company is run according to principles that work because you're getting those principles from the one who designed the universe and world in which we live, and you're showing up in love, which means everything flourishes with love. You start loving the plant in your house, and it was trying to die, it'll even come to life. So it's a real power, you know, to love whether it's people, plants, or whatever it is that we're talking about. So Steve, in the Bible, you know, the Apostle Paul talks about how all things are lawful for me, yet not all things are expedient. And I recall that you and your wife made a decision at some point to, to stop drinking alcohol. And so what was behind that decision and what benefit did you see as a result? Yeah. So at the beginning of COVID, right, we all go into lockdown and, and we all kind of were like, you know, I don't know, not all of us. We were like, yeah, it's like camping out. Like we're watching lots of shows and like, you know, we're not going to work and we're staying up late and having, you know, a bottle of wine. And then the next night it's maybe a bottle and a half. And the next night it's two bottles. And all of a sudden my wife and I are looking up each other like, this isn't going to go good. Like, like eating, drinking. No. And so we're like, we're going to stop. And so that was April 2nd of 2020. And so we didn't drink for a whole year. And then our 10th anniversary was in May of 2021. And um, we went to Napa for that. And it's kind of hard not to drink wine when you go to Napa. And I'm sure it can be done. We couldn't. So, you know, we had some wine and, and it was fine. And, and then alcohol reentered our life for a few weeks, couple months, maybe. And no one was getting drunk. No one like, like biblically, like we were honoring, you know, the commandments there. But I just felt this over overarching, like, 
you're not supposed to drink, Steve. Like I've called you to a higher standard and my wife didn't feel that. And so, but like every couple of weeks, she's like, are you sure it's okay if I have a glass of wine? Like she's been very honoring and respectful in that. And then what I found is there's some practical benefits to it. Like I, like I, this, like this morning I was up at four o'clock in the morning to bring my in-laws to the airport. And then I go play basketball uh, at five, three times a week. Well, if I had had even one beer or one glass of wine, like you're a little bit extra tired for basketball at four o'clock in the morning. And so then you're not getting as good of a workout and then you're gaining a little bit more weight. And, and so like there's there, and then that compounds, you get knee injuries because you're bouncing around with more weight, going to conferences where everybody is drinking and, and lots of people are drinking to excess and me being there and being 100% on my game for any of the conversations that come up, which whether they're trivial or whether they're things of eternal consequence, where we're talking about faith and salvation and generosity and things like that, where I'm not going to skip a beat because, you know, I, I was a little bit slow to the plate because I had a drink or two. And then being able to get up there early the next morning with all the people who get up early to exercise not wondering what did I say last night? Did, did I have that conversation? And then the guilt that comes around that, which distracts my ability to perform the next day. All of these little things that aren't right or wrong, if uh, you can be following the letter of the law, but they're just side benefits to it. And so it's been amazing. It, it, there's challenging times, but they're fewer and farther between. Oh, I love that story. I mean, I just love how you unpacked it because clearly, you know, like you said, there's no prohibition per se against drinking. Yes, against being drunk or drinking to excess. And yet you find that, you know, removing alcohol completely keeps your mind sharper, keeps you more fully present in the kinds of conversations you can have, whether they're strictly business focused or it's really more about a person's life and, and salvation and those kinds of issues. And then also you're taking care of the temple because you're going to be able to play your basketball better and do all these other things. So for you, that was important. And at the same time, you, your wife had freedom to make a different choice because that wasn't the calling specifically for her. And I love that, the fact that you can be married and you can have some differences and support each other, you know, in those differences is also what you're talking about as well. So when you think about older corporate executives, and that's who I normally talk to, you know, even on this podcast, but people who are in that baby boomer generation or the, the, the older group, and they're still in the workplace. They maybe haven't completely retired yet. They're out there. What kind of advice and counsel would you give them about developing this next generation of corporate executives? People who may think differently, have a different worldview, different experiences. What would you share? A, I would be, I'd be humbled to, to even be asked to give them advice. But I would say that offering help, offering to mentor, calling it mentoring, offering to meet regularly with someone that is 20 years younger than them, because most people are scared to ask. And, and, and someone's got to put themselves out there. So that older executive, that more experienced executive, right? They got to put themselves out there and say, hey, I'd be willing to mentor you. Is that something you'd be interested they could very well say, thanks, but no thanks. So I would say, you know, I would encourage them to take that risk. I have a gentleman who at my church who was a orthopedic surgeon for a number of years, was a partner in a very successful practice. And uh, he retired, I think probably at age 58, 60, something like that. And he now works at Starbucks. He, he's a barista, whatever the male version of a barista is, at Starbucks because he wants to keep up to date with what 20 something year olds are doing in culture so that he can be effective because he knows that God has called him to mentor young men. And so he purposely, I think that's a beautiful, beautiful example. And he asked me, he says, Steve, I want to mentor you. And I have lots of mentors. I have lots of people I can go to that. And, and I could have very easily said to him, you know, thanks, but no thanks. But he knows his clarity and his purpose is to do that. And so he's got to put a bunch of offers out there 
to find people who, who want to accept that. So I'd probably be the advice that I'd be humbled to be able to offer to, to people that are um, in the later years of their career. Oh, that's wonderful. I love the fact that you're saying, in essence, get out of your comfort zone, do whatever you need to do to create the invitation, learn something about that group. Like this guy's doing that by being a barista. He doesn't have to do that at 58 and already retired and successful and so on. He's giving back, you know, by doing that and not assuming that he knows what's going on in the minds of uh, the younger people that he is choosing to mentor. So that's a wonderful example. Thank you, you know, for sharing that so we can get a picture of it. You know, what does it really look like? So Steve, there's such a thing as a good idea and there's such a thing as a God idea. How do you tell the difference between a good idea and a God idea? And how does that play out in your life? Yeah, we, we, my wife and I use that a lot and, and we literally ask, is this a good idea or is it a God idea? And I would say, I'd say most of the times God ideas have coincidences around them where like we thought of this and then there was an alignment in our life that also t- spoke into that. And it's, and, and it's a biblically based, you know, God arraignment to where these come together. Um, I would say that that's oftentimes practically where that comes in. Um, you know, my wife and I, oftentimes, if we have the same idea separately and then come together, those oftentimes get labeled as God ideas. I am the king of ideas in our family, and my wife is very sick of all of my ideas. And so this is a question that that we ask a lot. Ultimately, this year, my my word for the year was unity. And so my wife has a very strong gift of discernment from the Holy Spirit. And so I'm the guy that comes up with the ideas. And then I say, babe, how do you feel about this? And and it's very rarely, I don't know, it could go either way. It's either nope or it's, yeah, I like it. I think that's really good. Now you can imagine which one happens more often than others. But that is the, um, that's kind of our test really for, for how we do that in our household. And I trust her. And, and the quicker that I can get to agreeing with what she feels on it, the better it works out for our family. Well, that's such a beautiful example of how God perfectly puts people together. You being the idea man, which is very entrepreneurial. And of course, your wife having the discernment to figure out which of those ideas are the ones that you guys maybe might need to pursue and seeing how it all lines up. What else is confirming whatever it is that's on your heart at the moment, not assuming that every good idea is a God idea. So you don't get off track at the same time. So thank you, you know, for sharing that people can use that strategy to say, you know, um, wait a little minute test it, look at it, you know, and then vet if this is really the direction for right now. So I really like the, uh, that advice and counsel. So now, Stephen, you've written a book that's called The Capacity Model, How to Build Your Best Life. And I'm sure we've been talking about some of the principles related to that book. What are some other practical tools and strategies from the book that you can share that would help leaders to intentionally grow their own capacity? And maybe I'll, I'll I'll do a little bit of a teaser on it to kind of cre- create the premise from from which then you know you can dive into the tools. But the capacity model is this: I define capacity as the ability to handle everything that life throws at us up until the point that we begin to experience stress. And I know I'm probably experienced stress in life, um, and and so our our capacity level. If you think of it as almost this this canopy, it's supported by three different pillars. And the pillars in the book I describe as our education, both the the quality and the quantity of it, our um, relationships, the quantity and quality of relationships that we have, and then our habits that we have built. And so the more we've spent developing our relationships, our education, our habits, the taller that pillar is and the higher the canopy of our capacity is. So the more it crap it takes getting thrown at us until we start to feel stressed out and so when we start to feel stressed out the the book says that we we need to look at that as a gift which most people don't view stress as a gift but it's a gift because life is telling us hey you're maxed out on your capacity it's time to grow again and we have really two choices when we feel this stress 
we can either enter the cycle of breakdown, which has a few phases, but essentially it, it begins with disappointment. I use marriage as an example for this, right? You get married, you're in the honeymoon phase. It's great. It's not stressful. And then all of a sudden you get in your first fight, you get disappointed in your spouse. And if you sit in that too long, you don't resolve it. You start to get disillusioned and think, why did I ever marry this person? Why, you know, they're not who I married at all. Like they hid all these things from me. And sooner or later, you begin to think about greener pastures, which is the third phase of breakdown. Like maybe I want to get divorced. Like let's separate. And then, you know what, let's just get divorced and start over. And the thing about greener pastures is they're greener for a period of time because you're going back to being single, which is below your capacity level. You've been single before, you know how to do that. And so it's not stressful for a period of time, but inevitably you're going to get in another relationship. You're going to hit your head on your capacity ceiling and you're going to do it all again. So instead of going through that cycle of breakdown, we need to have a breakthrough and breakthrough is done by proactively identifying what's going to be the biggest thing to impact my capacity ceiling. Is it going to be education? Is it going to be some relationships that I need to develop or do I need to put some more habits in place? And so the book takes that and then it breaks down the types of education, the types of habits you can put in place, the types of relationships to develop, and what I've experienced in my life and what I've seen works best to do that. Well, that's a gift right there because there's so many people probably sitting in situations right now where they think it's hopeless, helpless, and it's time to get out. And with this context, you're really helping people to see No, it just means you need to grow a little bit more. You need to increase capacity so that you're able to navigate in the relationship that you have. That's not necessarily a signal to exit. It's a signal to expand, if you will, your ability. So I I love that. And so if people get nothing else out of the book, it's more about how to grow capacity to handle everything that life dishes out. That's powerful in and of itself. So I hope people will order the book. So Steve, tell us how people can get a hold of you, how people can order the book or any other way that you want people to reach you. Yeah. So probably when people saw this podcast listed, they saw Steve Perry and they're like, is the lead singer of Journey on? So naturally, steveperry.com wasn't available, but steve-perry.com was. And so that's that's my website there. It'll have a link to my book, The Capacity Model. You can always go also go on Amazon. Um, the capacity model, how to build your best life is on there. And uh, con- contact information is also on steve-perry.com. And uh, I'd be happy to connect with anybody. If you have an office or an organization where you want to order a bunch of books, I can give you a lot better deal than Amazon will. And so um, you can just do an inquiry on there on steve-perry.com. Always the entrepreneur and salesperson. I love it. So you're already showing those gifts about being able to offer the books in volume. So uh, fabulous. (laughs) So Steve, you've shared so much today that will benefit the listeners and wisdom. What additional words of wisdom do you want to leave with my audience of corporate executive leaders? I would say that the journey from being successful to significant is, is really the most powerful journey that that you can make. Not that your success didn't create significance, but but moving into a season of life for the rest of your life where you're purposefully being significant in in what you're doing and where you might've taken chances economically um, or maybe relationally to to be successful in business, then I, I would say and encourage people to be bold in whatever they feel like their calling and their purpose is in, in life um, and specifically their giftings. Because I think, I think as we grow up, so many people teach us that we need to work on our weaknesses, but life is so short to get like a negative six to be a positive one versus, you know, living in a positive eight to 10 and giving that to the world for the rest of your life. Because there's in any area that you're, you have a weakness there's people who that's their strength. And if you can surround yourself with those people and then you operate within your strength, the amount of significance that you're going to be able to look back on your legacy, a, it's going to be a lot more fun and B, it's going to be significantly larger. So if I could just encourage you to be bold in living out your special gifts, that would be the last piece of advice I'd have. 
Well, that's phenomenal, Steve. Thank you so much for sharing that with us and everything else that you've shared today. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to just summarize a little bit, just a tiny bit of what I've heard today. What I've heard today, I've heard you say, and you just said this at the end, be bold, operate from your areas of gifting and strength because you're going to make a bigger impact in the long run. Have partners and people with you who have other gifts and talents and strengths that come alongside the ones that you have so that collectively you also make a bigger impact. I've heard you say that when there's stress in life, see it as a gift because it really is a signal that you can grow to greater capacity. So you want to look at the parts of your life that may need to grow, whether it's your education, whether it's relationships, whether it's habits, there's an opportunity to grow into the new opportunity rather than to just abandon ship. I also heard you say that whatever it is that you want to do, decide that you're going to do it. Be proactive, craft your life, build your life around what you want to do, and you'll probably find a way to make it happen. And take the journey with some other people, whether it's going to be at a Bible study, at work with others, whether it's taking the lessons from church and applying it to the workplace. There, there's information, there's relationships, there's so much out there where we're not alone. So bring that all together. Give, give to other people, whether they report to you, whether they're at the peer level or just out there somewhere and you have something to offer and to give. And every gift gives back. So those are just a few things that I'm translating out of what you said, Steve. And there's a whole lot more. So I hope people will go back and listen to the podcast and get some of those nuggets because you might need to hear them more than once. And as we close out the show today, I'm going to share a Bible verse, set of verses. This comes from Proverbs, the 31st chapter, verses four through nine. And this is a mother speaking to her son a son that she knows is going to have a significant role in life. And she wants him to be able to step into that role powerfully. And she says, it is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Open your mouth for the speechless in the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and the needy. So, Steve, I think you're a perfect example of one who's stepping into the royal priesthood, the kingship that God has placed on your life, knowing that being sober in all of these situations and circumstances is so important, not just for you, but for the contribution that you're giving and the deposits that you're making in other people's lives. So to the audience out there, take that wisdom and run with it yourself. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.